Are you ready to make your law firm a profit-generating machine that will free up your time and skyrocket your impact? With more than two decades of business growth experience and having proven that you can be successful while prioritizing your family and your impact, introducing the Profit with Law podcast. I am your host, the creator of the firm differentiator 10x effect, Moshe Amsel. Well, hello and welcome back to another amazing guest interview here on the Profit with Law podcast. I'm your host, Moshe Amsel, and I'm I've got a treat for you today. Why? Why is it a treat? It's always a treat. I always say I have a treat for you. So um, no, but I'm excited about our guest today because we're going to be diving into the finances, the numbers, what makes your law firm tick. And that excites me. It excites me because I am an accountant and numbers is my thing. It excites me because I'm a profit first professional. If you haven't read the book Profit First, you definitely need to. Um, I really love talking about numbers. As a matter of fact, the reason that I work with lawyers today is because of the very first law firms that I had as clients in my accounting firm. So I had uh, I had gotten five law firms as clients that you know you all know each other. One referred the next, referred the next. Before I knew it, five law firms as clients, um, and what I found was four out of the five. One of them was an anomaly. I mean, she just went like. Um, from from less than a hundred thousand in one year to over a million the next year, but the other four nice firms, you know, they had multiple lawyers on staff, support staff, and then when I got into it and started seeing behind the scenes, I saw that they were moving money, moving money from their personal accounts to their business accounts to cover payroll, to cover rent, like these big nuts that the business had to pay. Um, it simply didn't have enough cash to pay. And they were constantly playing this money game, this hamster wheel of money in, money out uh, to be able to make that work. And that really opened my eyes to a problem in the industry where law firm owners, and I don't want to make a blanket statement because there's plenty of people out there who have figured it out. They're winning at the game, but many law firm owners just don't understand business. They don't understand their finances. They don't understand where they're at and where they need to be. And that's why I'm excited to have this conversation today. So our guest today is Laura Terrell. Laura Terrell is the founder of Laura Terrell LLC. She is an executive coach and she's got over 25 years of experience as a legal and business leader. Uh, I'm reading you her official, you know, bio intro I was given. It doesn't say anywhere in here, but she's also she's an attorney, um, a practicing attorney as well. She offers an insider's perspective for business, legal and corporate professionals working to help her clients to improve and achieve success in their work lives. Prior to coaching, she was a special assistant to the president at the White House, a senior level appointee at the U.S. Department of Justice, an equity partner in two large global law firms and in-house counsel at a publicly traded company. I guess it does say she was a lawyer. My bad. Laura has also led and managed teams of people across multiple countries, serving as a top advisor to many Fortune 500 and FTSE 100 companies, partnering with her clients. She enjoys helping them reach their goals and build confidence in their careers. 
Learn more about Laura and follow her blog at lauraterrell.com. If you're interested in learning more about our elite lawyer program, it all starts with an absolutely free coaching session. So you can book a free coaching session with my coaching staff um, where they will spend um, the time with you to help you understand and uh, and overcome the things that might be getting in your way of achieving your success. Uh, you'll leave that coaching session invigorated and inspired to be able to continue moving in the right direction. Now, in full disclosure, at the end of that coaching session, they're going to potentially offer you the opportunity to join our elite lawyer coaching program. That is the only way that you can get into that. Um, so if that's something that interests you. If you would like some help along the way, uh, then go to profitwithlaw.com forward slash free coaching, profitwithlaw.com forward slash free coaching takes you right to a calendar booking link. You got to answer some questions on a form there, grab a spot on the calendar, and there's absolutely no commitment. You just have that coaching session, see how you feel, and then decide whether you want to continue the ride with us. Laura, welcome to the show. Thanks, Moshe. I'm really excited to be with you here today. And I'm excited to have you. Um, first of all, your smile, excitement, breath of fresh air. Love to have somebody who's just we're ready, to, ready to record a podcast episode. And um, I'm I'm excited for Go. what we're going to cover today. Uh, what happens is is somebody is out there out for a run right now, listening to us, and they're like, Laura, who? Laura Terrell? Never heard of her. So for the people who have no idea who you are, paint a picture. Let us know, like, what, what was your journey like? Um, and, and give us the, the Cliff Notes version, but give us an idea of what makes you tick, how you got involved in, um, in law, how you got involved, I mean, working in the White House. I, I mean, it's really cool. Uh, give us a little bit of, of that background so that we, we know, we know who, who you are. Sure. Well, thanks again for having me here. And to everybody out there jogging or running or doing errands while you're listening, thanks for listening in. And Moshe, thank you for having me. Um, I am a practicing lawyer. Um, I started out my practice working for a financial regulatory authority as an enforcement attorney. And I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do as a lawyer, but along the way, I became a specialist in white collar investigations and litigation. I worked in the government. I had the opportunity to work in the White House and at the Department of Justice handling some homeland security issues, working in large uh, litigation matters, and eventually found my way back to private practice and was partner, as, as you mentioned, with two large global law firms. I loved the business of lawyering. I really liked understanding what made the business of law profitable, what made it practical, what the firm's expectations were financially. At my last law firm, I think the favorite person that I talked to was our chief financial officer. And I think a lot of lawyers probably couldn't even tell you how many conversations they've had with their firm's chief finance or chief revenue officer. And as I was thinking about what I wanted to do next in my career, I really wanted to share with people unpacking some of the mystery that surrounds finances. And that's true whether you're in a big law firm, a solo practice, or a smaller firm. There's just a lot you need to know. And my mantra really is that you need to treat your career like a business, and you need to treat your legal practice like a business. And I'm very passionate about that. I think a lot of lawyers don't know that, don't understand that, and it holds them back. And I want to help them move forward. Awesome. I love that. I love your journey. Um, and it, it, you know, it, it sounds like you've, you've, you've garnered a lot of experience along the way. 
When you say that you need to treat your law firm like a business, what exactly does that mean? Because we we hear it. I mean, the, there's people are, are saying that all the time. They're pounding the pavement. They're saying, look, you can't walk around saying, hey, they don't teach business in law school and things like that. But what what defines a business? What, how does how does somebody know whether they're treating their law firm as a business or not? Well, if you think about any business, whether it's a landscaping company or an accountancy firm or a law firm, you've got priorities. You have a certain kind of target client that you want. You have a certain kind of demographic that you're looking for. People maybe that have lawns that are over half an acre or people that have a um, net revenue income of a of million or more a year. You have goals that you want to achieve with that. You also have expenses in that business, regardless of the type of businesses and law firms are the same. You have overhead, you have an electric bill, maybe you have property taxes, you have to pay insurance, healthcare for your employees. And I find often with law firms and lawyers, almost all of that gets blocked out and lawyers say, I'm a, I'm a really good lawyer. I'm a great litigator. I'm a terrific M&A specialist. That's great. But if you can't convert that into thinking about how that translates to a profitable business and a business that works for you. It may be you say, hey, I'd rather be in a smaller business than I would in a large law firm. And that's okay. That's a great choice. But you need to know the economics of that and what matters for that. So that's what I mean a little bit of when I'm talking about thinking about your law firm and your career like a business. Yeah, I I think that um, when it comes to to business, right? you're you're trading something that somebody else wants a commodity of some kind and uh they're giving you money in exchange right now clearly it needs to be any the 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 finances have to make sense in other words you have to bring in more revenue than you're expended expending in costs to um to make that work but i think that the first place that that law firm owners might go wrong is they don't realize what it is that their inventory is. Imagine if you um, if you open a grocery store and you've got shelves and shelves all lined up ready to go and you have to fill those shelves, right? And you buy one bag of flour and you put it on the shelf and you say, okay, I'm open for business, right? You can have a thousand people walk in that door, but you only got one bag of flour to sell. And it's impossible to make money that way. It's impossible to be successful that way. And I think that the first place that that lawyers don't recognize what's going on is they don't even realize what is the inventory that I'm selling. I think that's I think that's a great analogy, Moshe. I think that one of the things I tell clients when I'm working with them who are lawyers is, okay, what's your what's your practice? What are you selling? If you're an employment lawyer, what's the market for that where you are? What kind of employment services are you selling? If you're doing um, labor side and you're working for um, big big companies, or if you're a plaintiff's lawyer, those are two really different kinds of practices. What's the demand for that? If it's just you, but you're trying to service a larger client base, you may have that one bag of flour issue also. How do you get the right people 
to round out the practice that you're in. Maybe you want to have somebody that really specializes in doing sexual harassment matters. Maybe you want somebody that really does ERISA and benefits work. And you need to think about what that whole package looks like. Or you may say, you know what, I'm really a specialist and and I'm going to treat my business like that and grow my business around it. I think also geography matters. You know, if you locate that grocery store with that one bag of flour somewhere that uh, people are looking to buy an organic product and they're not looking for flour, but they're looking for vegetables, you're going to need to think about, do I need to move this to a different market? Or I do know I need to expand the awareness of what I'm doing, talking about marketing and branding and things like that. So there's a lot that goes into that store with that one bag of flour that hopefully is going to grow to more. Yeah. And um, we we actually have a, one of our original episodes. So we're like well into the 300s as far as the number of episodes we released here on Profit With Law. But if you go to ProfitWithLaw.com forward slash 029, uh, you'll find an episode called Why Choosing a Niche Will Skyrocket Your Firm. And in that episode, I talk about this exact concept of how um, you need to really focus in on one practice area, not even one practice area, but one sub practice area and become the the go-to attorney for that. uh, If you want to achieve any sort of rapid growth, because if you try to do everything for everybody, what ends up happening is, is you can't scale that. You can't you can't create systems around it. You can't build your team. And I, and really when I gave the analogy of, of the inventory, what I was alluding to is the fact that when you have a law firm, what you're selling is legal services. Now, whether you're billing for time or you have, you know, flat fee billing or all, there's all kinds of, or you're contingency based, whatever it is, the reality is, is what you're selling is the attorney's time, the paralegal's time, the support staff's time. And if what you said at the beginning, one of the things you said is like, you have to, you have to know what is the type of practice you want. Do you want to be a solo? Do you want to have multiple attorneys working for you? And I think the mistake that people make is they think a solo means that I have to be the only one in the office. Right. And the reality is, is no, you can be a solo attorney and still have five people working for you. Right. It's not the quantity or the, the, the complexity of that support staff is not what goes into that term solo. You just don't want to go grow beyond what you can handle your capacity as, as a lawyer. That's fine. But don't try to hold on to everything and do it yourself because that's putting one, ba- one bag of flour on the shelf. When you, when, when you start to recognize that business is built around how do I expand my inventory? And when you recognize what the inventory is that you have is your time and expertise. And if you want to expand it, you need to have other people's time and expertise that you can sell. That's when you start to realize what it takes to, you know, to have a successful business when it comes to a law practice. I couldn't agree more. I think even in one large law firm that I worked with, um, the most valuable person on my team was my executive assistant. This was somebody that really, I felt, built the practice with me. I might have been building the practice as sort of my own P&L within a larger firm, but my assistant was just invaluable. There were things that she was more capable at than I was. There were things that she was more uh, efficient at doing that freed me up to do other things with my clients that made it capable for me to expand my business. I mentioned my 
good relationships, I think, with the financial uh, and the accounting teams of my law firms, those are one of the things that that I really valued. I felt like getting to know the folks in those departments was helpful because if I had a snag or if I had a problem or something that I needed somebody to help me um, unravel, those were the people I could go to. It was not a good use of my time because unlike you, Moshe, I'm not an, an accountant. I'm not a financial um, actuary. I'm not somebody that can can do that work, but I knew who to access to do it. And I think you're absolutely right. In a solo practice in small law firms, it's no different. You need to have the right people on your team to be able to allow you to grow as a lawyer. And again, that's a business mindset for thinking. You may say to yourself, well, I really want to be freed up just to do great trials and great appellate work, but you need to have the people that are on your team that can help support the business part of your business. Yeah, exactly. So if you want to be a great trial lawyer and that's your whole goal, um, I mean, first of all, you have to decide why, why did I start a law firm in the first place? Why do I not just work for somebody and be a great trial lawyer? But assuming that you've navigated that, that journey and decided that owning your own firm was the way to go, um, hire a CEO or call them an office manager if that scares you, but hire somebody to run the office so that you can spend your time prepping for trial and sitting in the courtroom instead of worrying about how are we going to uh, make sure that there's coffee in the Keurig at, at the office. You know, those are just things that that are a distraction to you and, and really shouldn't be where you're spending your time. So you, you, one of the things that you expressed to me is that you know, you really like um, looking at the financial side of the business. And I am a big proponent of, you know, hire more staff. Don't try to do it yourself. I mean, and, and we're big on like virtual assistants. It's like uh, one of the one of the uh, biggest uh, wins that I get for my clients is convincing them to bring on somebody from Get Staffed Up. And if you want more information, you can go to profitwithlaw.com forward slash Get Staffed Up uh, to get $750 off your onboarding fee for your first staffer. But basically, you can get a full-time employee that's outside of the US, but they're English speaking, they're professionals, often they have master's degrees, and it's costing you $1,850 a month to add 40 hours of work to your, you know, to your team. And that's a great first place to start to bring somebody in to start to just hand some, hand some things off and, and get, get them handled by somebody else. The challenge that law firm owners have at every stage, whether it's at the beginning or whether it's in the middle, you know, they're, they have multiple attorneys that anytime that you're looking to expand, you're looking to hire somebody, you're looking to bring on a marketing agency, you're looking to you're, any expenditure that you're looking to make you end up needing to spend money before you make money, right? It's an investment in the firm. And one of the things that really slows people down is the ability to make that investment. What are your thoughts on that? Like, how should somebody prepare for those situations? It, you know, is it is it aggressive savings? Is it credit? Is it, you know, go to grandma? Like, what, like how should an, a, a law firm owner plan for and expect to have those expenditures, that's it never ends. As a matter of fact, as you grow, it gets bigger, right? The amount that we're going to go out and invest in is going to is going to get significantly larger as we grow. Uh, you know, now when I'm solo, I might be grappling with whether I should pay a marketing agency $2,000 a month. And when I have four attorneys, I might be grappling with whether I should hire a CMO at $100,000 a year. So those the, those things that we that that we have to go out and do the the price tag gets bigger as we go 
but ultimately, we need to be in the financial position to do that. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, let me say first that I also am an angel investor and work with a lot of startups. I've uh, coached and worked with a lot of solopreneurs, people that are starting their own businesses outside the law. And I think the principles are very similar. If you're going to start uh, a great idea, if you're going to found a company, it's very similar to working as a solopreneur at a law firm and founding your own law firm. You're going to need to do a number of things. First of all, you're really going to need to think hard about what does your first year look like? What does your first two years look like? How do you want to grow? How much can you scale that you can afford to do? And, and some of that is, as you pointed out, Moshe, comes from maybe you get some friends and family money. Maybe you get some loans. That's how a lot of uh, startups get their, their initial. Maybe you want to think about, can you save some money before you go out on your solo journey? If you're at a larger law firm, how much can you save before you get there? And where is that going to get you? If you've got those four attorneys and you think you need to hire a CMO, you need to sit down and look at the numbers. How much are those four attorneys generating versus how much is the cost already that you have on the overhead? I mean, these are these are not tough concepts, but I think they're things that people overlook. Sometimes you get so excited about the business and you say, this is a great opportunity. I don't want to pass it up. Well, maybe you can get a part-time marketing assistant for $50,000 instead of 100000 or maybe there's an opportunity. I love your idea of the virtual assistant, for example. Somebody that has more flexibility, maybe is at a lower cost, and you're going to have to work a little bit differently with somebody not in the office, but is that possible if you have shared space that you use? There are a lot of ways to, to craft around that, but I would say, just like an entrepreneur, there's friends and family money, there's your savings. There's also a matter of how much you really want to take a risk. And I think you do in any business need to be very risk conscious. What's your risk tolerance? Are you willing to take maybe a home equity out on your, your house to get this started? Well, if you're doing that, you've got a lot of skin in the game. What do your other four attorneys have in the game to be able to get this done? Um, how do you want to make sure that you can do this properly? Your, your story about uh, the law firm where personal money was being transferred into the business accounts. And unfortunately, that happens in all level and all sizes of firms. Large firms make capital calls on their partners, which I always found really strange. You know, you're basically saying in order to pay you, we need you to pay some money into the firm so we can pay that money back to you. Okay. Um, a little bit, a little bit circular, I think. It's necessary when you have a shortfall. And if you find yourself in a shortfall position, the other thing is don't wait until the creditor is there or your line is coming due. You need to be proactive about thinking about, all right, how do I get my hands around this? Where can we cut expenses? Where can we change how we're doing things? But I think it's a combination of, of tools that you have in your toolkit to be able to confront that. Yeah. I, you know, I, I really like a lot of what you said, but there's something that you, that you, as you said, but didn't say, and, and this is, I, it could be that I'm reading between the lines too much. But one of the things that I um, that I teach my my clients when they first join me. So in the first six weeks that they join me, we spend six weeks not doing anything other than creating a plan. And one of the things that I garnered from what you were saying is you kind of have to make sure that the numbers work. You have to work it out. And I, you know, I tell my clients, if it doesn't work on paper, how do you expect it to work in real life? Right. But nobody does that. Right. Mo I shouldn't say nobody. Most law firm owners are not doing that. You're just flying by the seat of your pants. Oh, I'm too busy. I think I need help. Let me hire somebody. 
oh, I hired somebody. I, I'm having trouble paying the bills. What should I do? Maybe I should raise my prices a little bit. The phone's not ringing enough. We're, you know, we, we have two dry months. Maybe I need to hire a marketing agency. Like these are the things that that's, that's how business owners are making decisions rather than sitting down and saying, what does my next year look like? And that's what you said you're going to do, right? Sit down and say, what is my one year, my three-year vision look like? And if you sit down and do that, what ends up happening is, is that you plan for the growth. You plan for what's going to happen. And at the same time, I love it. There's a tool called Live Plan that I, that I introduce my, my clients to. Many of them don't end up using it. They just use Excel. But um, Live Plan is really cool because it can predict your cash flow also. So you put in there that, you know, how long it takes to get paid by your clients and all that stuff. And you can see where you're going to have a cash shortage based on the projections, the plans that you have, when you're going to hire a new person and when you're going to bring on that marketing agency or when you're going to make that investment in, you know, the piece of technology that's going to be the next thing for your firm. And I think that uh, if you don't, if you're not doing it on paper and, and, and getting the profit margin you want, then you're not going to get it in real life. And that once you have that plan, now you also know what you need to make that happen. You also know how much you're going to have to be out. You also can paint the worst case scenario, best case scenario, and know what the worst case scenario might look like. Um, and I think that's really important is do it on, you know, put it on paper. Do it. I mean, I don't mean physically paper, but, you know, do it in Excel, do it, you know, sit down and project the numbers of the plan that you're going to implement. And I think that, uh, when we look at law firm owners, often you can see somebody who went like they overnight, like 18 months, 24 months, they, their law firm is cooking. I mean, they are successful. And then you have people who have been doing this for 10 years, 15 years, and they're just, it's a struggle and they're just trying to make ends meet. They're just trying to make a living. What is the difference between those two? It's not how good of an attorney they are. It's not you know, um, do they have a better network than the other one? Most of the time, it's simply because one has a better business sense than the other because they're doing these kinds of things. They're mapping out their plan. They're figuring out what they need, what they're going to do. Um, and that's what I read between the lines, what you were saying, like you need to, you need to predict what you're going to be doing. You got to create a plan. Well, I think you absolutely have to create a plan and you also want to be proactive, not reactive. Good example. If you know that your um, fiscal year is January 1 to December 31, and you need to collect a certain amount from your clients by the end of the year, but hey, let's be honest, those last couple of weeks of December, people are taking holidays, maybe they're spending time with family. It's hard to get in touch with your clients, and maybe you can't get your clients to pay. So you need to make that money at the end of the year. What are you doing up front? Is it in your plan maybe to offer your clients? a 5% discount if they will pay in full by December 15th so that you don't have to spend your holiday time and your New Year's party time trying to collect money. If you're thinking about that in advance, how am I going to get to that goal? If I need to bring in 3 million by the end of the year, if I need to have 3 million in revenue, how am I going to get there? What am I going to do? And, and thinking about it in December, I have clients that say, well, you know, it wasn't a great month in December. And, you know, it's always tough with receivables. And I say, okay, well, well, let's look at what did you do? What was the plan? And how did you execute on that? I think the other thing that you pointed out, Moshe, that I find really critical with a lot of my clients is 
if something's not working, you need to decide whether to let it go. Let's say you've decided that one of the ways you're going to do your marketing is you're going to go to conferences and you're going to um, go to trainings and you're going to travel. Maybe you're based in New York, but you're going to travel to California twice a year. Well, you need to ask yourself, what, what revenue did I get out of that? What real impact did I get? I did some good publicity. I talked to some clients. But if it's not generating revenue, you need to then think for the next cycle, okay, what do I give up? I think sometimes people have trouble letting go of things that are not working. And that's one of the things that I would say is a big mistake in having your own firm or your own company is if it's not working, you should always be evaluating. Is this productive? Is it effective? Is it financially savvy? Can I afford it? And if you can't, you need to find an alternative and you need to do it before you get into trouble. You know, Laura, you make a really, really good point. And I just want to circle back to this planning phase because things take different amounts of time. And it's very hard once you're in it to make that decision. Um, I, I've been dabbling in, in, in options trading for a while now. I have a, a coach that, you know, that I work with. And um, one of the things when you're in a trade is it's very hard to figure out when to get out of it. And the best way to do that, because if you're if you're if you're making money, then you're like, well, I, I don't want to lose more upside. I want to hold on. But then you might hold on and then all of a sudden tomorrow it drops and now you you lost everything you made. Right. Or if you're losing money, you're hoping you're going to be right. You don't want to lock in the losses you already have. So you're resistant to selling it because you don't want to lock those losses in and you might continue to take a ride down. Right. So that's what's happening in your psyche as it's happening. But the way to be a good options trader is when you go into the trade, you say, this is this is my exit point on the high side, and this is how far I'm willing to go on the downside, and this is where I exit. And if you set that before you execute that trade, you'll lock in your profits when you hit them, and you'll lock in your losses and not take any more losses when you hit that bottom number. And it's no different with business. If you're going to go and spend, I don't know, we're going to invest in SEO marketing, right? And I'm going to talk to this SEO provider and ask them, what, it, what are the expectations? How long does it take for SEO to work? And they say, well, you've got to let it go for 12 months, maybe as much as 18 months before you can look and see, you know, is it really being successful? Well, then you know that you're in this for 18 months. If you cut the cord before that, you did it to yourself, right? You created your own demise in, the, in, in that investment. But if you allow it to go for 18 months, what's the window after that? When do you evaluate and say, is this not working? And we stop spending money on it. So maybe you give yourself a six month window from 18 months to 24 months, or maybe you go a year out from there. So 18 months to 30 months. But at some point you evaluate and say, okay, if this is not doing anything for us, let's redirect this money to the next thing, to the next marketing project and, you know, and stop spending it here. Um, often it's, we stay in it too long, but also often we don't give it enough time. And you have to evaluate before you even enter into that, what is the period of time? Same thing with a new employee, right? How long am I going to give a new employee before I decide whether they're worth keeping or not? And we don't really think about that. Oh, I'm hiring somebody. They're just going to be here until they're not here anymore. But the reality is, is that we all know the mantra, hire slow, fire fast, right? You should be making a decision within the first 90 days or even less, whether somebody is a good fit, whether they're working out. And if you're still trying to figure out, is this going to work? at the 90 day mark, you should be letting them go and moving on to the next person. 
because somebody should be working at that point, right? They, they, they should be effective. They should, you should have that feeling like, wow, it's a breath of fresh air. I can't believe I went managed without them. And if that's not what you're experiencing, let them go. Move on to the next person. It's so interesting that you say that because I talk with a lot of my lawyer clients who are frustrated with something's not working. You know, they've been in a practice area that is maybe been in decline for a while, or maybe their firm's just not investing in it, or they are having difficulty trying to figure out why this particular client is, is just not giving them the level of work they need. And one of the analogies I point out is just what you were saying, which is think about this if you'd hired somebody. If you'd hired somebody to do X for you and you had it in your mind that you were going to give them 90 days to, to see if they could accomplish it and you're on a trial period with them, maybe you got your, your trial, um, like your trial Zoom subscription or your trial for something else, think of it the same way. If the 90 days came up and that was the, the standard that you set in the beginning, 90 days, they need to achieve this many new leads, they need to do X, Y, and Z. If it doesn't happen, you've got a you've got a marker. You've got a standard by which you had pre-agreed. Okay, when that's not met, it's time for me to move on. I'm not suggesting that you jettison everything just ad hoc and without any standards, but the same is applies if let's say you're going after a really key client that has always been really good and really loyal to you but the work has started to diminish or the rates that they're willing to pay aren't working for you anymore. Instead of just waiting and seeing if it's going to change, best thing you can do is say, how long am I going to give this? And what are the standards by whether I'm going to judge if this is working for me and my business? And if you get to the end of that period and that standard hasn't been met, you know what the decision is. It was already planned out for you. You already planned it as part of your proactive thinking. Yeah, you know, you just triggered my my thought process of my favorite author. So Mike Michalowicz, no secret. I love the book Profit First. He's he's a great author, very funny, but he has a book called The Pumpkin Plan. And in his book, The Pumpkin Plan, he talks about this idea of getting rid of your worst clients and 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 the process that you can use to make that happen. Um, as a matter of fact, one of the things that um that he talks about in that book, and I and I teach this to my clients, I think it's like the best strategy in the world um, is if you have a client that you're just not feeling it anymore, right? It's just not working out. Um, they're a drag. They're a pain in the butt to deal with. It, it, the, the whole idea is, is that th those types of clients are taking up most of your time and energy and they're the most difficult ones to get money from. And they're the most, you know, like they don't want to pay the bill and stuff like that. You just go to those clients that you want to get rid of. And instead of saying, hey, I'm going to get rid of you, um, he says, you just give them an outrageous rate. So if you're charging them 500 bucks an hour, you tell them, hey, listen, I got to raise my rates. I'm sorry that I have to do this, but your new rate is going to be 2000 bucks an hour. And if they really want to work with you, then they will say, okay, and they'll pay it. And all of a sudden, they fall in line, right? Because suddenly they are now paying you this outrageous amount of money. So now they see you in a different light. Most of the time, they're going to be like, no, that's ridiculous. I'll go find an attorney for 500 bucks an hour and they leave. But now they self fired themselves. You didn't have to do the hard work of saying, hey, look, we're not going to serve you anymore because it's just not working for us. Instead, you gave them an opportunity to continue to work with you, but make it very lucrative for you to have to deal with them. And in the end, they end up 
you know, falling in line anyway. Uh, so that's a great tactic or strategy you can use. But I, I you know, I love dropping um, books that have this kind, these kinds of nuggets in it. So go read the pumpkin plan. And you'll you'll see how amazing this can be if you just do this on a regular basis, once a quarter, once a, once every six months. Just go through your client list and like which is the client that we're dreading when the phone rings and the receptionist says so and so is on the phone. We're like ducking into the bathroom, you know. If that's happening, it's time to get rid of that client. Well, I think it's often a good practice to have an annual, every six months check in about a number of things. It could be. Your client base. Uh, what does our client base look like? What, what does our profitability look like with them? Have we gotten the right work out of them this year? It could also be a check-in on your employees and how they're doing. I am really frustrated for my clients when they tell me that they don't really evaluate the people that report to them. They don't themselves do an evaluation or get evaluated in their firm until the end of the year or once a year. It is too late when you're sitting down a year into a conversation to talk about whether something is working from an employee standpoint. And getting feedback and asking for feedback and giving it is so critical throughout the year. I think as a business owner, if you are trying to run your law firm and you're waiting until six months from now, nine months from now to have a real conversation with the attorneys and non-attorney professionals that work in your firm, you're doing yourself a disservice. You ought to have regular check-ins to, again, ask, is this meeting? If it's not, or if I need to say to this employee, look, uh, Laura, this is a tough thing for me to say, but I need to see these things achieved in the next three months, or I need to see this much improvement in the next three months. And I just need to be honest with you about that. I want to help you with that. How can I help you get there? But I want to make sure that we have the opportunity to do that and not have surprise conversations. That's another really hard thing about managing at a firm, I think. Yeah, I, I love that you bring that up. There's actually, I'll drop another book here, Radical Candor by Kim Scott. Kim Scott was an executive at Google, an HR executive, and um, she wrote an amazing book called Radical Candor, which is all about this idea of being ahead of it and talking to your employees about it in a way that's effective in a way that's going to improve them and not and not hurt them and she starts off opening the book talking about this coworker dan or or employee or direct report that she had this guy dan um and he did he did good work but the first time that he turned the work in it wasn't up to up to her standards so she fixed it and then the next time he turned it in it was it wasn't up to her standards she fixed it and this went on and and instead of telling him, hey, look, this is not, you know, this is not up to par and it needs to be corrected in this way and giving him an opportunity to fix it. She just kept fixing his mistakes and his work got worse and worse. Um, and then eventually she ended up firing him. And in the exit interview, he she said, you know, these are all the issues with the work that you're doing. And he looked at her and he said, well, why didn't you tell me? I could have fixed that. Like I could have improved. Why didn't, you, why didn't you let me know? And that's what we do as, you know, as, as, as business owners is we, we tend to just take things back 
fix the problems ourselves instead of giving the feedback necessary to our employees so that they can become better, so that they can be more effective in the work they're doing for us. Um, and so it's a really great point that you bring that you bring up of, of not just letting things slide or ignoring them and, and actually having conversations and setting expectations. Um, every employee that you have should know what their job function is. They should know what they're responsible for. They should also know what they're not responsible for so that they can stick up for themselves and say, hey, I, I don't think I'm supposed to be doing that. Uh, and, and not end up holding a whole bunch of things that, that are keeping them from doing what they're supposed to be doing because this got loaded up on them when it really should be somebody else doing it. I love Radical Candor. It's a great book. Um, I've recommended it to many people. I wish more lawyers read it. It's funny how lawyers are great advocates and particularly litigators can be really zealous in the courtroom. But when it comes to giving Radical Candor or um, productive feedback, and, and timely feedback, they're just really scared of doing it. And the same is true, I think, for a lot of lawyers with their clients. You know, if a client says to you, um, well, you know, th that that I'm okay with how that ended up. I, I, you know, let's try to do better next time. Or next time I, I would hope we could come in on budget with that or whatever the, the feedback is. So many lawyers say, you know what? I got paid for that. The product is, is the, the project is done. I'm through that hurdle. That's an opportunity. That's a real opportunity to sit down with your client. And if you really want to be brave and, and say, hey, I appreciate that you were honest with me about how you felt about this. Can I dig a little deeper with you? What is it that was problematic or what could we do differently? Remember, you're selling. You're selling yourself as a business. You're selling your services and your, and your product. If you leave a client feeling dissatisfied and you haven't had a real conversation with them, that's also not a great asset for your business. And it might be something that eventually that client just kind of goes away, has less need for your work. If you value that client, you value their work, you owe it to yourself and your business to have a candid conversation with them about what could be done differently. You might not agree with all of it. You might have some practical suggestions that would change things for the next time. But I think having that same radical candor with your client and inviting them to give that to you is a gift that that you really want to ask for. Yeah, I, I think that it also works the other way, right? Because if the client comes to you and expresses a concern and maybe of going over budget, for example, right? But you you didn't go over budget on purpose. So maybe there was expectations that were not good. And maybe by have by addressing that and having that conversation with the client, the next time that they have something going on, the expectation will be higher. In other words, they'll have a new expectation based on that conversation, and then they won't be disappointed the next time because their expectation was set correctly. So I think that it's not just solving the problem or addressing it and making sure they walk away with a good feeling, but I think it's also about educating the client on what is realistic and what they should have expected. And, you know, maybe they had incorrect expectations. You know, I, um, I remember going into my, I, I, I got divorced. I'm, I'm remarried now, but, um, I remember going into my divorce. Um, you know, everybody warned me like, Oh, be careful. You know, it's going to cost you $30,000 and, you know, in attorney fees. And then I met with, with my attorney. Um, and he was like, no, this is simple. It's going to be, you know, we're, just a few meetings, a few back and forth conversations, you know, at, at 600 bucks an hour, it, it, you know, probably five, $6,000 is what you're, you know, what you can expect. He was wrong. And he did a disservice to himself by 
letting me think that that was possible. The reality was the divorce itself was closer to $30,000. And then I ended up trying to get my child support reduced. And that ended up being another $30,000. Like it was just, you know, like the, the, if the expectation had been set properly from the get go, I at least would have known what I was walking into and walked away feeling like, okay, whether they did a good job, didn't do a good job. None of it would have been based on expectations that were wrong as far as what the cost would be. But by setting that expectation low, just to get the business, he lost a client, right? I'll, I'll never use him again. I'll never refer him again to somebody else. Um, and, you know, I, so I think that it's that radical candor, whether it's with employees or with clients, I think it's important for both, both sides of the coin, you know, both at not, le- not addressing the situation and not allowing it to fester, but also to set the correct expectations for the future. Well, you bring up another great point, which is the need to really think about what the scope of the work is that you're doing and what it's going to cost. Uh, You mentioned, I think, a few minutes ago that lawyers often are not good about thinking, what's this really costing me and can I afford to do this? Well, the same is true when it comes to, to budgeting for your client work and what you need to charge your clients. One of the clients that I worked with very extensively in private practice was really keen on flat fee agreements. And a lot of lawyers really don't like those because they say, oh, it requires me to set the scope and the expectations and everything can change. And it's hard to know how much it would cost. I actually enjoyed that part of the work because it forced me to sit down and think about what does it really take to do this case? Or what does it really take to handle this matter? And how would I describe it to the client? So they have a really clear picture of what we're going to do, how long it's going to take, what resources it's going to require, and what do I say are the unknowns that could change that factor and could alter that if something comes up? Maybe you get an emergency motion or something like that. I wish your I wish your divorce attorney had done that because those are the kinds of things that really do build in a, a no surprises attitude. If you set the expectations up front, it's hard to have surprises that come out of nowhere. And that's again something you really want to avoid in the business. But getting savvy on that that budgeting aspect and really thinking what it costs you to do the work is another way to help manage that expectation. Yeah, I, I, I think you bring up a really good point. And I'm actually looking. So we have an, an episode that we did um, uh, talking about the um, this, this idea of getting rid of the billable hour and going to an alternative fee arrangement. Um, and I'm just, I'm going to take one more second and try to find it so that I can point people in the right direction. Um, but I actually think that when, since we're having a conversation around what is a business and and what, you know, how, sh- how should I look at my law firm as a business? The reality is, is that a business is all about uh, increasing your profit margin. The more money that you can make on the revenue coming in, the better off you are, right? Um, as a matter of fact, the profit margin before taxes that you should be aiming for is is probably in the forty percent range. And and many law firm owners would look at me with you know like I'm wearing I'm I'm walking around with two heads like that kind of like what what are you talking about? How is that possible? And the reality is, is it is possible, but the the billable hour requires you. Um, to, and by the way, the, the episode is the death of the billable hour. It's episode 26, profitwithlaw.com forward slash 026. Again, another old episode, but one very pertinent. Um, with the billable hour, you're motivated to spend as much time as possible on this matter for your client. You're motivated to have your 
paralegals spend as much time as possible. And you're motivated to not allow anybody else to do anything because they're not billers. And it puts you at odds with the client because they want it to be the cheapest possible and you want it to be the most expensive as possible. So it doesn't really, it's not, it's like the ultimate conflict of interest that attorneys put themselves into, yet it's how most attorneys run their business. Having a flat fee puts the onus on you to figure out how do we, how do we deliver the same thing to our clients in a more efficient manner? And when it comes to divorce, that's non-litigation, when it comes to bankruptcy, when it comes to um, estate planning, uh, a lot of these, a lot of the things that are, or, or even a business attorney where, you know, contracts and, and, and HR guidebooks and, you know, employee manuals and all that stuff. Um, all those things are things that you can basically decide, you know, it's a defined scope and you can set a price on it. And then you can train non-legal oriented staff how to do the job. And you can push the cost down to a much lower skilled person than where it might be if you were running a regular billable hour practice. And that allows you to achieve the, uh, you know, a great profit margin. It allows you to get the work done and with a lot less cost to do it. Um, estate planning, just, just show you an estate plan, for example, right? Where's the bulk of the work in the estate plan? It's in gathering the information from the client. It's in organizing it in a way that you now understand their financial picture and where the risks are and what they're, you know, what they're concerned about. An estate planning attorney really needs to have a conversation with the client at the beginning and be there for the signing at the end. That's all they need to do. Everything else can be done by support staff. Even the drafting could be templated. It could be, you know, like you can basically have the drafting done by support staff. And you can charge seven, eight thousand dollars for for an estate plan where you're putting two hours of your time or three hours of your time into it. And the rest is being done by support staff. And lawyers who hang on to this, this is the model. This is the model that that we've been doing for for centuries. It's actually not centuries. It's actually flat fee is the way it used to be. Um, uh, if you look into the history of, of law, uh, but in the in the mid 1900s, it went to this the billable hour model, and that has stuck. But really, that comes from people's participation in these large firms, right? So when you start your law firm, you're coming from a larger firm, and you're just taking whatever you saw being done there and implementing it into your business. So you're never really thinking about is this the model that works for me? And the reality is, is that for sm- most small law firms having a, an alternative fee arrangement different than that model actually puts you, it gives you a competitive edge. It puts you, it puts you above the competition because when somebody's looking for a solution, they're not just looking for a solution to get to, to get what they want. They're looking to get what they want for the price that they want. And if one attorney is going to have an open-ended billable hour that they're going to be on the hook for, and another attorney has a flat fee, even if it in theory, is more than what the billable hour would be. They're taking the flat fee. I also they know th- that that's the end. I also think it's it it really is short sighted to see the flat fee model as not profitable. Again, this comes back to how you look at your business. Where are you spending your time? As you say, where is your support staff? Where are your paraprofessionals spending their time? If you can spend your time a couple of hours on something, and your associate 
your paralegal can do some of the other work. Maybe that's the paralegal gathering all of the data that you need for an estate plan. Where are the different accounts? What's going to go into the trust? You know, do I have a good picture so that everything is going to dump into the trust and we can make sure it happens? That doesn't need to be done by a partner. That doesn't need to be done by the, the, the firm managing partner. That can be done by others. You can make that a profitable business, but you've got to be strategic and thoughtful about it. One of the first questions I ask clients who come to me and say, hey, I'm a lawyer, I'm, I'm struggling with, I'm being told I'm not profitable enough for my, for my big firm, or I have a small firm and I'm really not sure how profitable we are. Okay, let's get, let's get level set here. Let's get to step one, which is let's figure out what your profitability is. I am surprised by the number of attorneys who don't know what their profit margin is. Uh, you just said, uh, Moshe, that 40% sounds like an outrageous number. It may not be. And you can do that on flat fee arrangements. You can do that in alternative fee arrangements, but you've got to look at what your actual profit margin is. And I find some people have no idea where they say, wait, my profit margin was 29% last year, but the year before that it was 37%. Okay, what accounts for the difference? Let's let's pick that apart and let's see what makes that higher or lower and figure out what the variables are that you could use to adjust that. I think people really have to get honest with themselves and not be afraid to look at those numbers because when they hear, well, you're not profitable for the firm or you know, the firm is losing money and we're going to have to take some money out of personal accounts and put it into business accounts, that's a failure because you didn't start out by asking, what is my profitability? What's it based on? And what could alter that this year? You know, Laura, you, you bring up a great a great point, and I want to hone in, in into these numbers real quick for a moment. Uh, we're almost out of time, but one of the one of the challenges that law firm owners have is under they understand that they need to know their numbers, but they don't know what those are. So, what when you when you're working with a new client, what are the key numbers that you tell them? Hey, look, you have to th- these are the this is the starting point. You have to know these numbers, and then once you know these numbers, then maybe you need to you need to expand it and know these numbers. What are the things that you're telling them to look at and look for uh, when it comes to their finances uh, or other areas of their business? So it's not dissimilar in my mind from what you would do if you were looking at your personal financial situation and you found that you just never seem to be able to save as much money as you'd like, or you never seem to have as much left over at the end of the month as you would prefer to put into that vacation. So basic question, let's look at it on a monthly basis. What did you take in? And, and we can do that on, you know, whether it was booked or whether it was incurred in terms of whether it's AR or whether it is booked and received revenue. And what did you spend? Let's break it down. I mean, you really got to get granular. And that's why some of the programs that you know lawyers are sometimes not as familiar with, maybe you have a good accountant that can do this for you, but let's sit down with that person because you should know, how much did you pay on the electric bill? How much did you pay on property taxes? If the price of the servicing of your copier has gone up by $500 over the course of the last year. Why is that? Can we negotiate a better deal? But I think it's just like your your home your home financial front in many respects. How much do you have that's left over your net income? That comes in. What are you paying out groceries, gas, food, uh kids school supplies, uh healthcare. And let's look at those two numbers and let's see what's coming in and what's going out. Those are really the two basic questions. 
Yeah, I think that when when analyzing expenses, one of the mistakes that law firm owners might make is not recognizing that some of the expenses are fixed and some of them are variable, right? And sometimes it's it's impossible to win if you don't have enough revenue coming in. It's not just revenue, but revenue minus variable expenses to have that fixed expenses covered. For example, uh, somebody rents an office with four, uh, you know, four offices in it. And, you know, their expectation is I'm going to have, you know, uh, another attorney, I'm going to have a paralegal and I'm going to have a receptionist. I need four offices. But they started, they rented the office with just them. Well, you have to pay for that rental, whether you have another attorney, a paralegal and, an, and, a, and a receptionist in there. Now, maybe when you had those people in place, your, your business might be doing a million dollars in revenue and you might have plenty to cover the rent. But now when you're first starting out, you can't get more than 200,000 in revenue. There's not enough to cover the overhead of that rent. And I think that that's, you know, things like that, where you, you, that's where it really helps to map it out on paper. Like how successful, how much does my firm need to be doing? How successful do I need to be to make this fixed expense something that is going to get me to the profit margin that I want. And if that's if if it if that's bigger than I thought, then I need to figure out how do I get how do I get there faster? And if not, then maybe I don't rent the space. Maybe I find another solution. Maybe I I co-rent with another attorney or some other professional and I use their space. Or maybe I, I go into a WeWork or something like that temporarily until I can grow into a space that I can, you know, that I can rent. I'm using rent as an example, uh, even though it's a dying model, right? Like you don't necessarily need an office to run to run a law firm. But the reality is, is that that's something that we can relate to and understand like, okay, if I have this cost, it doesn't change when when I bring in this client. It doesn't change when I bring in the staff member until I'm out of office space. And therefore, I need to figure out how to cover this and still make the profit margin that I want. So I think it all comes back to this, this idea of put it down on paper. Like, let's see if we can achieve the profit margin I want. Let's see if we can achieve the take-home pay that I want with my plan. And if I don't think it's realistic for us to bring in X amount of cases with this staff that I have, then it's not going to work. Right. And I think what you're talking about is, you know, there's there's layers you can go through in terms of these expenses and fixed amounts. We talk about what rent costs. So let's say it's five thousand a month. Okay. well, let's break that down by square footage. And let's at the second level, how much that square footage you're using? How much do you contemplate using in the next six months, to your point? If it's salaries, how much of that in salaries is, how much are you paying out in healthcare? How much are you paying out in, um, in take-home? And is it is it the right level? Have you benchmarked against the market, see where you're paying too much, too little? Let's get into some of those numbers that really look, really look interesting. Uh, the same is true in a big firm. If somebody's looking at their profitability, it's a little bit harder to know as an individual lawyer, but you can certainly look and see, did you do work at a lower rate? Maybe you need to move into a practice where you're billing at a higher rate in order to get your profitability up. Or if you're writing off a lot of time, you need to change your ways of working to be able to get away from that so that your profitability margin looks larger within a large firm. So there's all kinds of levels I think you can drill down on, but I think your point is a great one about 
really just needing to understand what are those fixed expenses and also really question how many of them are really fixed or how many of them you could you could make some alterations then. Yeah, I love that. And and um, there was um, a, one of the podcast episodes I did. I'm not going to remember which one it was. Um, I talked about this idea of, hey, if I've got extra space in my office, maybe I sublet sublease it to somebody, right? Maybe I bring another professional in. There's a small accountant who's just getting started. Let him rent to, you know, two of my of my offices while I'm not using them so that I can, you know, cover some of that. So it's you don't always have to like downsize or get rid of what you have. You can you can be creative and find other solutions to solve the the financial conundrum. But to have to be paying the rent, be paying the electricity, have those those, you know, a bunch of offices go just sitting there um, doesn't make any sense. It's not going to the, the there's no way that the financial financials are going to work in your favor when you have waste like that. And the office is just one example, but it could be anything. Right. Like, I mean, how many of us sign up for like 17,000, you know, software subscriptions and then we come and look at it and we're like, oh, I'm really only using three of these and, you know, I need to cancel the rest. Um, you know, in our personal lives, we've got all these streaming video services, right? You want to watch one show. So you sign up for this service, you know, free trial or the first, you know, 90 days or, you know, promotion rate and you forget about it. And if you don't look again at your credit card statement and check what the charges are, um, you may suddenly realize that, oh, wow, I'm paying now 60 bucks a month for this thing that I thought was $5 a month and I'm not even using it. So um, definitely pay attention, pay attention to your numbers, pay attention to your finances and, and really keep a handle on it. Um, understanding what your goal is, right? What what is your goal? Is it a profit margin? Is it a certain amount of money that you're taking home? Is it you know? Is it a size? Is it the legacy? Like what what are you trying to achieve? Make sure that you're that you're stepping into that. Laura, we are at the tail end of this episode, and when I uh, wrap up the episode, I finish with two things. First, I'm going to ask you to share one last parting piece of advice. Your top, you know pearl of wisdom for our audience uh, that you want to share. And the second is how can they learn more about you, get in touch with you, uh, work with you in some way uh, if uh, they really liked what you had to share today? I would say I'll leave the audience with this, not focusing on the financial side of your business, whether you're in a small firm, a big firm, or somewhere else not treating your career and your your legal work like a business is the biggest mistake I see with my clients. Once you get a good picture about what you want your business to be, what your business goals are, and whether you're meeting those, you really have a much clearer picture. And you have, frankly, a more fulfilled legal life. Your lawyer life gets better from there. But I think not understanding, not knowing the business side really holds folks back. If folks want to get to know some more about me and uh, connect with me. I'm obviously on LinkedIn, like all of us are these days. You can also go to my blog, which is at my website, www.lauraterrell.com. And I've also got a free download um, you can pick up on Bitly, and it is nine lawyer questions. Nine questions that lawyers find to help make breakthroughs in their lives. That's nine, like the number, not spelled out like the word, nine lawyer questions. And I'm happy for people to check that out and look forward to connecting more. Awesome. And folks, we'll share those uh, links with you in the show notes. So you don't have to remember or stop and write it down if you're in the middle of a run or you're in the middle of the shower or you're driving in traffic, because uh, we know 
you're doing all kinds of things while listening to us chatter here. Uh, but uh, definitely go to profitwithlaw.com, check out the show notes for the page, and we'll have links to everything that was mentioned here, all the resources, any podcast episode I mentioned, any book I mentioned, it'll all be there. My team is amazing. Really appreciate them uh, for keeping all of that stuff in one place for you. Uh, Laura, it's been absolutely incredible having you here. This is a great conversation. I really appreciate your time. And folks, if this is your first time or second time or third time tuning into this podcast, you haven't hit the subscribe button yet. You want to be notified when we release a new episode. We do that at least once a week, often twice a week. And uh, by hitting the subscribe button, your podcast player will let you know that a new episode is out. And then you'll know to tune in for the next amazing one that we have coming. So uh, definitely hit the subscribe button. One last thing. Every month we open up a few spots of uh, our on our coaches calendars and allow you to have an absolutely free coaching session with one of our coaches. So if you are um, on in, in your business, you are maybe struggling or wondering why it's taking you so long or just not seeing the results that you want. You're feeling frustrated. You're maybe considering whether you should go back and take a job as a lawyer come have a conversation with us. Let's talk about it. Let's figure out what your goals are. Let's help you analyze why you're struggling, why you're not getting uh, where you want to go. And uh, we'll help you get to the bottom of it. So go to profitwithlaw.com forward slash free coaching, profitwithlaw.com forward slash free coaching to book a slot with one of our coaches today. Until next time, let's make sure we're profitable. Keep that money in the bank. Don't give it away to somebody else. We'll see you next Thursday. Take care. Have you been enjoying the show? We sure hope so. To make sure you never miss an episode, be sure to hit the subscribe button in your podcast player app. Next week, we will be back with more valuable resources and ideas on how to break the mold and take your law firm to the next level.